Hola mi gente, bienvenidos. I'm your host Lore and this is Creepy Chisme. Some stories and info are not suitable for all, especially young children. Listen at your own risk. Hola mi gente, it's your girl Lore here with another episode of Creepy Chisme. Welcome back y'all, I missed you. Hope you guys have been keeping up, a lot of you have. I think you guys like this bi-weekly posting and it gives me a lot more freedom and just time to really put together my thoughts. I've really been excited about this season too. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to go the full year again. I might take a break. Might not. We'll see how I feel after this school year. <laughs> Speaking of teachers, it's spring break. Finally, I feel like my school is the last school to have a spring break. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Everybody has had it already. So I'm going to enjoy it. And then five more weeks, five more weeks <laughs> until summer vacation. Teachers, my heart is with you. I feel your pain. We're going to get through it. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I have some big things coming up pretty soon. Just in life. I'm talking in general. Just in life, I've got some big things coming up and I'm really excited to finally feel like I found my purpose in life. Yeah. It's really exciting. Um, you know, just a late bloomer, that's all. <laughs> anyway, it's a dark and stormy night. It really is. And I, I love it. I love the rain. I love storms. But we have a big one coming, so I'm trying to record this intro before it gets here because I'm sure there'll be thunder. I can hear the wind already, so sorry if you hear that. Today was a gorgeous day around here. It was 70, but the weather sucked because it was raining. But it was beautiful. Cannot wait. However, my spring break, <laughs> you gotta love Chicago, right? The weather for my spring break is in the 40s. Come on. It's so cold. I had so many ideas planned. We'll see what I get into. But <laughs> I'm just gonna relax, you guys. I just need a break. I just need to relax and sleep. <laughs> because lately I have fallen into a rabbit hole a rabbit hole where conspiracy theories that I've never heard, I just, I'm, I love that stuff. I love it. And if you like that kind of stuff, I promise you I have a conspiracy theory coming up very soon. You don't want to miss it because these new conspiracies that I've been uh, reading up on, a little, out, a little out there, but if you love it, you're going to love it. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Hello to me, nueva gente. Nice to meet you. I'm Lore. If you don't know, I tell it like it is or tell it like I heard. That's why this is called Creepy Chisme. <laughs> if you follow me on TikTok and you see my short stories there, you know that I love spreading the spooky chisme. And a lot of people will be like, oh, she's lying. And it's like, you know, I didn't make this up. Like, I heard this. Like, I literally heard this. I researched this and I put it together for you. Didn't make it up. <laughs> so call me a liar, whatever you want. That's why I named my show Creepy Chisme because I'm just telling you what I heard. 
and we all love chisme and that's why you guys are here duh but today i have some special guests with me who are going to join in the chisme and ooh. It's a good one, y'all. It is a good one. So I don't want to waste your time too much tonight. Um, I haven't given an update in a while, but I'm going to today. So if you live around the Northwest Indiana area, then you have been keeping up with the missing Gary woman. I believe her name was Ariana Taylor, and uh, she was like 23, 24. I'm telling this from the from my memory, so sorry if I get something wrong. Just search missing Gary woman. I believe on April 2nd, she disappeared. It was a very weird, like, when I heard it, it caught my attention because I'm like, what? Like, weird things catch my attention, right? So the story was that a vehicle had crashed off of I-65, I-80, 94. You guys probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But let me just, a vehicle crashed off the highway, expressway, sorry. And um, the car was to not totaled, but, like, it was pretty bad. And the thing was nobody was in it so when they traced back the car to its to its owner the owner said oh i let this person use it and it was ariana taylor so ariana taylor was the last person to use the vehicle but she was missing so the crash then became a missing person case it was very strange and it's still very strange however today april 13th 2022 the remains unfortunately of Ariana Taylor, who have been identified by her mother, were found this morning. It breaks my heart. I can't imagine what her family is going through. But what breaks my heart even more is that the Gary police came out and gave a statement stating that yes, they found her remains, but they said something that really struck a chord with me. They said, no suspects are being looked into right now, and there doesn't seem to be a cause for like alarm. Like they're not worried about it. But let me explain something if you're not keeping up here. She or someone crashed the car, okay? And then her body was missing since April 2nd. It's April 13th. And then her body was found, not even hidden that well. She was just like laying in a retention, not a retention pond, um, like a drain. Not even, a, I don't know what you call it. <laughs> it's not a drain. <laughs> just like a little prairie area not too far from the car crash but still a distance away so even if she was thrown from the vehicle which i don't think the vehicle looked like she was because they would have assumed that right so why is no one saying this is odd i i don't know maybe more is gonna come out soon maybe she was disoriented and walked away from her car i can see them saying that but i really hope Gary police take this serious and really look into it and I hope her family fights for that because they deserve to know the truth. You know, my intuition, which I've been practicing listening to, just says something is wrong with this case. So stay tuned for that or keep up with it in the media. Not the media. Don't believe the media. Fuck the media. Sorry. Follow TikTok. Follow Twitter. Those are the go-tos, okay? Because real people are reporting real, the real stories. That's where I get my information from. As dumb as it sounds, I do not watch the news. I don't read the news. <laughs> so keep up with it or I will keep you updated. Uh, don't forget to follow my Facebook group because that's probably where I will post about it. Instagram, TikTok. It's just a weird story. So I'm definitely going to keep my eye on it. 
Anyway, that was my update for you guys. I have some listener stories, but I'm going to save them for another episode just because this one's pretty long and I don't want to keep you longer than I should. But if you do listen to my one hour plus episodes, thank you so much. So let's get right into it. Let me introduce my guests. Here we go. It's time to get creepy. All right, here today, mi gente, I have with me my good friend Joe and his wife, Goy. Say hello. 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 It's been a while since y'all have been on the podcast, but for good reason. True. How's parenting going? <laughs> um, you know, it's eight o'clock, so we're in bed. <laughs> <laughs> Living on pajamas. Living on pajamas. <laughs> Aw, but you guys are doing a great job. Thanks for taking the time to uh, join me for this really great story that Joe actually sent me the other day, which is funny because just recently on an episode I said that I want to do more Chicago-based crimes and hauntings so yeah so you actually sent me this story and then i was like i kind of brushed it off i was like another story to add to my files i'll get to it but for some reason i was bored at at work i clicked on it and i was like wait a second i know this story and it's a good one it's a great one so before we get into our story for those in the world that are not familiar with the beautiful city of Chicago. I wanted to do a little discussion about Chicago because Chicago is a pretty old city. It was established in the 1800s, 1833 to be exact, um, and it's known for quite a few things. So I'm going to go through these and see if you know any of them. I was quite taken back with some of these. So the first one I have is the term jazz was coined in chicago in 1914 you know like yeah like jazz like hey that's so jazz (laughs) no uh so that was pretty shocking it's home to one of the world's largest public libraries do you know the name of that library is it harold washington it is and i didn't know that that was the world's largest i've been there when i was a kid i also have been there I, it makes sense now that you say it's one of the world's largest. Yeah, I never knew that. It's been in there. Massive. And again, it's probably one of those things like we grew up around here. How do you say like we took advantage that you don't look up the library, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> we actually, I only went on a school trip to be fair. Yeah, that Not makes sense. Way. That makes sense why you took a trip there. It's a pretty big library. Now this, I, I think I knew this, but this refreshed my memory and I think it's so great. The infamous Route 66 starts in Chicago, like in the city. There's a little sign in everything. It's a little tiny, it looks like a parking sign. And that's where Route 66 starts. My cousin took it. My cousin drove it this summer, actually. Yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think our friend Dan has has done it, too. It sounds like a really cool trip. And there's a lot of weird things on it. Route 66. Yes. I just remember uh, (laughs) Route 30. (laughs) Yeah, Route 30 is another famous one. The entire country she knows. (laughs) Route 66, the only thing that I think of when I see that is jeans. You remember those jeans? I don't know if they make them. (laughs) All right. So the next thing is that the Twinkie was invented here in 1930. You like Twinkies? What is Twinkies? uh the little like uh, it's like a little yellow cake and it has filling inside 
I've eaten many in my life, but I'm not a f like I don't go to the store because I want a Twinkie, you know. If it's yeah, there, I'll eat Twinkie it. Twinkie reminds me of uh, Zombie Land now. <laughs> no, not that. Oh my god! That's I so mean, do disgusting. they sell Twinkies yeah. around the world, <laughs> or is it just around here? I, I, I do like I like uh, Nutter Butter. That's good. Man. Oh no, I don't like Nutter Butters. What? I'm not big like I, is that peanut buttery? Cause like I'm not big with peanut butter stuff. Peanut butter sucks. Okay. Listen, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I have to be like in the mood for peanut butter. So That's another funny. one is in 1871, after the Great Chicago Fire, the city was quickly rebuilt. So most of the ash and debris was actually pushed into the lake. Oh God. I never oh, knew funny. that, but it makes sense. Because don't we do that with our snow? Like when they plow the streets, they throw the snow into the lake. I don't think so. I've heard I, this. They just push it to the side and it eventually melts. No, in the city, they can't push it to the side. Where do they push it? Into the lake. Oh, and it makes sense because I've never seen oh, giant piles. Anything Lorraine says. <laughs> <laughs> we have a thing called Lorraine effects. It's true. I might be making that up. But think about it. When you're in the city, in the heart of Chicago, do you see giant mm. piles of snow? No. I mean, I never thought about it in my entire life. But I'm telling day, so. you, look it up one day. They they push it into the lake. That's what I heard. Someone can fact check it. But I do know for sure the debris from the Chicago fire, they did push into the lake. That's wild. That is crazy. <laughs> Chicago was home to the World's Fair in 1893, which I know most people know. I knew that one. Yes. What's that? It's literally the World's Fair. It was like a huge, huge thing, which is yeah. actually the World's Fair. It is the reason why Chicago was built. Like they built buildings specifically for the World's Fair. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, of course, we are home of the skyscraper, known to have that's four right. of the country's 10 tallest buildings. And that's true because I've been to some other major cities, uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Austin, Dallas, and like you see their city skyline. I've even been to New York and you see the, the, like, the city skyline and you're just, I'm not impressed. It's <laughs> not like Chicago. Yeah, plus we have the vagina building. Exactly. It's what? a diamond. It's really a thing. Yeah, there's a building. It looks no. like a well, I mean, not very detailed. <laughs> no. She probably could pick it out, actually. But I mean, I've lived here so long, and I still am amazed at the Chicago skyline. It's gorgeous. It's I amazing. genuinely love Chicago architecture. It's it's amazing. One of the best thing in the city. It's just gorgeous to look at things. Yeah. Vagina building? Oh no, not just specifically the <laughs> vagina building. Uh -huh. <laughs> All Another cool thing about Chicago is we have over 26 miles of public beaches. I didn't know it was that long. What'd you say? Well, I said when they're not closed down. When they're not like closed. summer, they're always closing beaches. You're right. They do always close the beaches. But mostly because the water's contaminated. I guess that's a good reason. <laughs> Maybe because they threw all that nasty debris in there. There you go. There <laughs> Makes sense now. Mystery it's, all, it's all making sense. Um, this is another weird fact, but I thought it was cool. Did you know that the Chicago River actually flows backward? What? How does that work? That works because they literally emptied it out one time and decided to make it flow backwards into the Mississippi instead of Lake Michigan. You can control the flow. I had no idea, but yes, apparently you can. Bro, can you thinking like, look, look at this way. We can send humans out of the earth and send them to another planet. 
How can they control the water flow? Maybe the aliens helped us. Or just dig it deeper on one end? No, we send people to space, and in return, they give us the technology to reverse our water. That's got to be it. It's the only solution we've come up with. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Here's my favorite one. The hot dog was born at the World's Fair after some fairgoers wouldn't eat this dude's sausages. So then he was like, hmm, let me put them in a bun and give people this sandwich. And they loved it. Wow. Yes. And yes, everyone, a hot dog is a sandwich. Is it? Yep. It's a piece of meat between two pieces of bread. I guess it is. I'm confused. What's the difference between sandwich, hamburger, a burger? <laughs> a burger is a sandwich, Just- too, technically. <laughs> Yeah, that's an argument people have a lot. Is a hot dog a sandwich? But yeah, if it's about the ketchup here too, right? Oh, you never put ketchup on a hot dog. Why? It's just okay, not part of a Chicago style well, hot dog. I get my hot dog with a ketchup. Oh what no! Corn dogs. I'm disappointed. Corn dog, not like what I'm imagining. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Chicago has is has great great many things in its history but chicago also has a darker past now the city's known for a lot of negative things the biggest thing sir al capone the notorious gangster um, oh, I heard about him. oh yeah he's done some crazy things all around chicago even in the suburbs um but that's for another time uh this was also home to the first known documented serial killer in america h holmes who actually was taking people from the World's Fair. I'm hoping to take a Chicago ghost tour this summer to go to like some of these places. Um, The Chicago River is highly toxic and has been tried to be cleaned many times. The river itself is claimed to be haunted as well. Many people what? hear, oh yeah, many people hear strange noises coming from the river, voices, seeing things. Oh yes. That makes sense, I guess, with all the, you know, debris from the fire pushed. <laughs> well, not just that, like they find lots of bodies in the Chicago River. What? Do you oh, remember yes. that time that Dave Matthews band drove their bus over the river and then uh someone accidentally let out their van the the van's toilet and poop got all over on this boat tour in the river oh no what the hell why is that not on your chicago facts that was in chicago oh god it's it horrifies i mean that's horrible well i mean it says it's one of the most toxic rivers yeah apparently it's got dave matthews poop in it (laughs) so gross it's disgusting yes um chicago is also the murder city mass shootings and murders are in chicago which honestly i think if you've lived here 10 plus years you've seen at least something in regards to a shooting or murder now another dark past of chicago is the story that i have for you today oh i'm excited <laughs> hey. i want Dorian. it's so close to our house yes it's actually really close to us yeah so let me explain before we get into this now this story is full of facts now this is from the early 1920s so this story has been told numerous times from one of the men involved and then also from lawyers other people in on the case um bystanders 
people that lived in the neighborhood. Lots of people talking, which is what we love, right? We love chisme. So... (laughs) I cannot live without it. Exactly. So a lot of... (laughs) So a lot of information has been changed, twisted, um, how do you say made to be more interesting, right? Um, fabricated. So, fabricated. There you go. That's a good word. So a lot of stuff um, that you may hear today or may hear on another documentary or another article, they're not always the same. And that's something I ran into in doing research is like I would read two, three different articles and they would all be a little different. So I went with what I saw the most of. So don't come for me, y'all. I'm just here to spread the cheesement. So today we're going to dive into one of the worst cases in Chicago history. This case is wild and honestly, very sickening. Today we're going to talk about the murder of Bobby Frank, aka the Leopold and Loeb case. This murder slash story has to do with rich privilege, white privilege, it has it all. In order to go into this, we need to go back to the 20th century, the early 20th century, when Chicago was overruled by a lot of European immigrants in a very booming city. Now, Chicago is known for many things like we just talked about, um, but it's also known for its many neighborhoods. I'm not kidding. You'll be walking a mile, no joke, and right you pass like three different neighborhoods in one mile. Like there are just so many neighborhoods in Chicago and a lot of, oh yeah, a lot of neighborhoods reflect their occupants. So everyone knows the good, the bad, and the wealthy. Now, one of these wealthy neighborhoods at that time was Kenwood. Now, are you familiar with the neighborhood of Kenwood? Uh, I've heard of it. Is it? I've never heard of it. I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> I've never. I, I'm. I've passed it many times because I looked it up on the map, but I've never heard of it. What's it nearby? So it's um, it's on the south side of Chicago, but to us, it's up. So it's not south of us. So to hear them say it's on the south side of Chicago, because to me, the south side of Chicago is like around where we grew up. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's actually not. It is south of the city and it's really close, like right off of Lakeshore Drive. So it's around there. Mm, I I think I've driven through it then. So yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So pretty much it's between us and the city. That's where Kenwood is. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, really close to home. Now this neighborhood during this time period had become a very nice place for the wealthier families, especially wealthy Jewish families, to live. And everybody knew everyone in this neighborhood. The kids all went to the same schools. It was very family-friendly. You know, the perfect neighborhood. Let's just go right into it and start the story on the night of the tragedy. So it's late night, May 21st, 1924. In Kenwood, at the Franks family home, nerves begin to rise because their youngest son, Bobby, hasn't come home yet. He's 14 years old and he should be home already. Now, he was at a baseball game after school, kind of like a pick-me-up baseball game, and he was supposed to come right home after, but he never did. He attended the Harvard School for Boys, which was the school in Kenwood where all the wealthy boys attended. So Bobby's dad calls up his friend, Samuel Edelson, who was actually an attorney. And the two men organized this search of the neighborhood because everyone was gonna help find Bobby. But nobody found anything, not even a clue. So around 10.30 p.m., the phone rings at the Franks' house and Mrs. Franks answers. And a man on the other end says, 
says, Your son has been kidnapped. He's all right. There will be further news in the morning. And then he hung up. Why, why don't you ever do the voices? Make up a voice for him. <laughs> no. I can't Come do on, that. Come on. I don't know what he said. No, because I hate this guy so much that his voice would be annoying. I don't even know. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so the man on the phone identifies himself to Mrs. Franks as Mr. Johnson. Now, hearing this news, Mrs. Franks, she gets all loca and then she faints because her kid's just been kidnapped. So she's laying there unconscious and this maid is trying to revive her and in walks Mr. Franks with his friend and he sees this. So after they revive her, she tells him what happened and then Mr. Franks is like, what do we do? <laughs> What do we do? Because if we call the authorities, my son could lose his life. So they were kind of stuck. Now, I heard two different scenarios as to why this happened because they waited about four hours before they called the police. So one of them was what I just said, that they were just worried that something would happen to their son if they would call the police. Another was during the phone call, Mr. Franks was given an address to meet at and he forgot the address. So he kind of panicked. So he not write it down? No, no, no. So he kind of panicked and they were like, what do we do? And then they called the police. So again, misinformation. I'm really not sure what happened here, but they waited. That's all we need to know. They waited to call the police. Whatever the case, after a few hours, they do call and, well, actually him and his friend went to the police and they told them that they got a call that their son was kidnapped and the police took it from there. Now the next morning at eight o'clock, a letter arrives at the Frank's residence with further details and very specific directions. So specific, even asking that the ransom money of $10,000 be in 20s and 50s and that it be old bills. It also called for the money to be put in a large cigar box and wrapped in white paper sealed with sealing wax. Now, after this was completed, the Franks were to remain by their phone at home to receive further instructions. Now, the letter also warned them that if they did not follow these instructions, that their boy would be executed. Now, if they did comply and do exactly what was asked, then they'd receive their son within six hours after the money transaction. And the letter was signed, George Johnson. So now we have a full name. Now this letter was not handwritten. It was actually typed, which is something I'll come back to a little bit later. So the Franks, of course, follow these instructions, but also around the same time, early morning, a man who was walking through an area known as Wolf Lake near Hammond, Indiana, was on his way to go to a repair shop when he spotted something a little odd along the way. So as he was walking through a culvert, which is like a little water canal, he spotted something sticking out of a large drain pipe. And that something was two small feet. What? Yes. So they're sticking out of the drain pipe. And as the man got closer, he noticed that a naked body of a young person was actually laying in it. So as he's standing there in shock, he hears some nearby railroad workers heading into work. So he shouts out to them to come help, and they do, and they all pull out the body. But when they pull out the body, they notice immediately that the body is not of a drowned victim. No, 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 no. This body had been severely beaten and destroyed. Somebody tipped off the paper and a reporter ended up showing up at the scene. The reporter's name was Albert Goldstein and he reached out to Mr. Franks because remember, as this is happening, the Franks who live in this wealthy neighborhood are missing their son. So he's like, hey, we just found this body of a young boy or a young person because 
They can't tell it's a boy. And so Mr. Franks is like, no, 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 that's not my Bobby. But he does end up sending his brother-in-law, Edwin, to view the body anyway, just to make sure. Now immediately, Bobby's uncle sees something very strange. A pair of glasses that had believed to be the victim's glasses, um, because he knew that his nephew didn't wear glasses. First clue. <laughs> but after removing these glasses, he noticed the victim's teeth. Bobby Franks had contracted rickets when he was very small, which is sort of like a vitamin D deficiency. And so that left these little tiny pearl-like drops on his teeth. And those closest to Bobby, they knew this. So the uncle knew that this was his nephew. So the body's identified as Bobby Franks. However, through all this commotion, Mr. George Johnson must not know that the body had been found because he calls the Franks again. And so he gives them some more specific directions, where to take the money, and he even sends a cab to pick up Mr. Franks and take him to whatever location. But already knowing that Bobby was dead, Mr. Franks doesn't get into the car. Once the body was positively identified, it was announced in the paper and reporters run to the neighborhood of Kenwood. Now one resident in particular was a second cousin to Bobby and he had a lot of information on Bobby and a lot to say to a lot of different reporters. And this young man was an 18 year old cocky genius known as Richard Loeb. Oh my god. <laughs> so no, don't forget that name, Richard Lowe. So, oh my god, I want to hear more about him. <laughs> so yeah, so let's recap here. So we found a body and we have a missing boy and we've just identified the missing boy as the body that was found. Now let's talk a little bit about this park, Wolf Lake. Because this park is literally down the street from where we grew up. Yeah, man, everyone cooks up the arachera out there. <laughs> Yes. Now, I had an uncle who used to be a sergeant in Chicago, and he used to tell us all the time of all the bodies found at Wolf Lake. You would be very surprised to know that it was not uncommon to find a body there. Yeah, lots of bodies around Wolf Lake. I've never been there uh, for more than like five minutes because I always get the yeah. creeps there. <laughs> I was going to say, you've never been there. What are you talking about? I mean, I've met people there. I've been there for like a few minutes, but yeah. I've ridden I've ridden the bike path past there, but like, yeah. I took the bike path there with your brother one time all the way to like the Lake city. Shore, yeah. And at first when I read this, I thought to myself, is there another Wolf Lake? <laughs> because I didn't think it was this one. <laughs> so yeah, so the people in the Kenwood neighborhood... They're shook. They are shook because this kind of stuff, it doesn't happen here, right? In this wonderful neighborhood full of rich people. So of course, everyone is like, who did this? Who did this? Now police had one huge piece of evidence, right? The glasses. The glasses. Yeah. Yes. Now Bobby's uncle said that they definitely weren't his. He didn't wear glasses, but these glasses were found at the scene. So police end up taking a little harder look at them. Now, also during this investigation, they interview boys from the school as well, 
as some of the staff. And one boy stated he remembered seeing a car zoom past after walking out of the building. Another major breakthrough came from a law professor at the University of Chicago. He said it was final exam time and a lot of students were asking questions about the final and what was going to be on it. And one student in particular, who he claims was the best student in his class, spoke of different scenarios of what he thought could have happened in the Bobby Franks case. This student spoke of the incident so much that the teacher thought it was a little bit weird. So when everyone's trying to study, this guy's like, let's talk about Bobby Franks. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before I introduce the main suspects, I want to share that this was supposed to be the perfect murder. Even after the newspaper posted the boy's identity and a picture of the one-of-a-kind special-made glasses, these murderers really thought what they did, they did it so well that they were sure police would never find out who they were. What? I mean, honestly, how do you leave not only glasses at the crime scene at the crime, but this, I, I remember reading, like, only three people in the entire country had like this specific style of glass. Exactly. Something. Yeah, I'm gonna go off of what you just said. So yeah, only three people because these glasses had like special hinges on them. And these types of hinges were so expensive and so obviously they belonged to somebody wealthy. Now when the police traced back to where these glasses were sold, they were really shocked to find out that yes, only three pairs had been sold in Chicago. Just three. So that right there, the biggest piece of evidence because you have no one as a suspect and now you only have three people. Yeah. So that's a huge breakthrough. So of course police follow these leads which were quickly narrowed down to one person because the other two had strong alibis. And this third person was a young man known for his high intelligence, Nathan Leopold Jr. Now, on May 29th, police visit the Leopold home. So a little about this family... They lived in Kenwood. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) It's all coming together. Yes. And they were said to be worth just over a million dollars, which today would be equivalent to $29 million. That's a lot of money. (laughs) So Mr. Leopold was a German-Jewish immigrant who was invested in, like, shipping and mining, and he was also an owner of a paper company. And so when police show up, Leopold Jr. is like, oh, hey, I was just on my way out, right? Of course. Oh, you little bitch. Okay, so (laughs) I told you I hate these guys so much. (laughs) So he claimed that he actually had an important appointment and he had to go. But police tell him, no, no, no. I think you need to hear what we have to say. It's pretty serious. So the police and the state attorney, known as Thomas Crow, along with the Leopold family, decide that it's best not to make a scene. We don't want to embarrass him. We don't want to take him to the station. We don't want reporters to see him and make these conclusions and write lies about him. So instead, they take him to the Hotel LaSalle in downtown Chicago. You know, because we don't want to embarrass the rich kid, you know? So... White kid, right? <laughs> the rich white kid, exactly. So immediately as they sit down, Thomas Crow pulls out the glasses and he's like, Have you ever seen these? And Leopold is like, Oh, if I were not sure that mine were at home, I would say that these are mine. That's exactly what he said. That's a quote, okay? Oh my- <laughs> What an idiot. 
So they're like, oh, yours are at home? Let's go get them. So they take him back home to grab his glasses, which oddly enough, Leopold couldn't find. So then he changes yeah. his story. Yeah, so he's like, oh, you know what? <laughs> I was at Wolf Lake a few times for bird watching, and they may have possibly gotten lost there. That's so, like, but he's putting himself at the scene of the crime. <laughs> no, he's not going to get caught, dude. Come on. That's what he thinks. <laughs> this, this guy's like a genius. He speaks like nine languages or something too, right? Uh, supposedly. So, oh, you don't believe? Yeah, I talk about that later. That I, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to think about him. So, um, yeah, so he's like, I've been bird watching, which sounds ridiculous right if you don't know this guy as i'll tell you later when i explain more about leopold's life he was a nationally recognized ornithologist which is someone who studies birds and everything about them so to police they were just like okay yeah he could have been bird watching at wolf lake right next to where this body was found okay we believe you now leopold even went on to say that he was at wolf lake a few days before the body was found <laughs> Just, I can't. Just digging a hole, man. <laughs> so, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't need the glasses all the time. So he said that he had put them in his coat pocket, his front coat pocket, and he remembered that he took a tumble that day, and that's probably when the glasses fell out. Now, Thomas Crow, I love Thomas Crow because he's like, prove it. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so he makes him put the glasses in his pocket and he's like, how'd you fall? And Leopold is falling around the floor and the glasses never come out. <laughs> That's amazing detective. Work. I mean, imagine how he feels. Like, you know, he's he's found three people with these glasses and he's down to one. And now this kid's story is like, come on, dude. <laughs> I mean, his story is literally, yeah, I was at the place of the murder, but days before this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so once that happens, they keep questioning him. And he ends up admitting that on the day of the murder, he and a man by the name of Richard Loeb went to look for a rare bird at Lincoln Park. So, he, Lincoln, yes. Illinois, Chicago? Yeah, Lincoln Park. Yes. So he claimed that he sat at the park drinking gin, gin and juice. Gin and, and juice. <laughs> and after a while, uh, they decided that they were just way too drunk to go home. Mm, sounds about right for teenagers, right? Just get an Uber. <laughs> no Uber, bro. We're in the 20s here. They go to eat to, you know, sober up a little. And they end up meeting these two young girls. And so they ask the girls to accompany them to Jackson Park, another famous park in Chicago. And the girls didn't want anything to do with them. So they leave. And the guys said they were too drunk. They didn't even catch their last name. Don't even ask them their first name. They don't remember. <laughs> so Leopold and Loeb drive back home and that was their alibi. But... Wait, so they still ended up driving home? Yeah. Even though they kept saying, I'm too drunk. <laughs> well, they ate hot dogs, so they were a little sober. So my guy, Thomas Crow, he's just like not believing a second of this. But he's listening. And so he's just like, all right, thanks for the alibi. We're going to search your room now. So they search his room and oddly enough, they find a handgun, which he was not allowed to have because he didn't have a permit. And they also found an old letter addressed to Richard Loeb. Now in the letter, Leopold states to Loeb that he cannot halt their friendship. In the letter, it is clear that these two men were intimate lovers. What? 
So Thomas Crow knew they had to talk to Richard Lowe. But Thomas Crow also thought that in finding out that these two men were lovers, Leopold's alibi about picking up two young girls made absolutely no sense. Oh, I didn't think about that. Well, you're not a state attorney general, Mr. Crow. Not anymore. <laughs> Mr. Crow is, and he seems to be doing a great job so far. Actually, no. Leopold's just a fucking idiot. <laughs> so... <laughs> so... It's true. It's, yeah. it's so true. Yes, like anybody could be. Like, I would, I'm sitting here scratching my head like, are you idiot? Like, are you kidding me? Oh. Anyway, they bring Leopold to court, to the courthouse, for more questioning. And they now also bring in Richard Lowe. Now, they held the men until the following day when their families were granted permission to bring them clean clothes and whatever they needed. Now, the Lowe family was even more wealthy than the Leopolds. They were estimated to be worth $4 million, which, oh yeah. Which, time? During oh, that time? During that time. Today, that would be equivalent to over $119 million. Yeah, so they were actually the, it didn't say the wealthiest in Kenwood, but it said one of the wealthiest in Kenwood. I believe it. Yes, Mr. Albert Henry Loeb was a wealthy lawyer and a retired vice president of Sears, Roebuck and Company. So he made it big. Now both the Leopold and the Loeb families wanted their kids to be treated well, but they also knew their genius sons, because they were both geniuses, literally, were not guilty. So they wanted them to talk to police. They wanted them to be questioned because no way in hell did their kids do this. It was insane. They, they would never do this. So this is why I taught my daughter never talk to the police. <laughs> Exactly. So they wanted these interrogations to continue because it's going to clear their names, right? So they thought. Now their family attorney spoke very highly of these two men's life accomplishments, stating there's just absolutely no way. Why would they do this? Why would two men with amazing futures ahead of them do this? So let's talk a little bit about these two geniuses. So we have Nathan Leopold Jr., the youngest in his family, and he grew up a very sickly child, but he still walked and talked very early in his childhood, and he also began reading at a very early age. He was mostly cared for by a governess or a nurse, and this continued into his later teens. Now at an early age, Leopold was labeled a genius. He claimed to know over five different languages, and three of them fluently but he never proved this to anyone so he would yeah so he would say it he'd be like oh yeah i know five languages but he would never prove it now richard loeb he lived a very similar life to that of leopold born into wealth raised by a very strict governess and that actually caused him to learn to lie at a very young age to avoid punishment. And Loeb had a very high IQ. They both did. Um, I think Loeb had like 190 something and Leopold claimed he had 210. But again, it was never fact checked. Yes. They almost beat my 215. Look at that. <laughs> run, Goist. Run. <laughs> I try. <laughs> Because they say the high IQ ones are crazy. 
Now, both of these men became very close in 1920. Around this time, Loeb developed a passion for committing petty crimes. And Leopold fell for Loeb and joined in on those petty crimes. In 1921, Loeb enrolled at the University of Michigan, and Leopold wasn't so happy that his friend was leaving him. He fell into a deep depression um, because his best friend was living away. I know that feeling. Well, not just best friend, his lover, right? Well, not yet. Maybe. We don't know. It's not very clear. So Leopold follows his friend and he ends up enrolling at the University of Michigan too. Now at the university, Richard Loeb, he wanted to join this all Jewish fraternity, but there was just some speculation that his good friend was a homosexual. So the fraternity was like, look, you can join us, but you have got to cut ties with Leopold because it wouldn't look good for them, right? So Loeb, he did. He was like, all right, I'll join. So they kind of stopped talking for a while. Now, these guys were very smart. I can't say this enough. They really were, so I think. They both skipped a few grades and they both entered university at the age of 15. So in 1923, at the age of 17, Richard Loeb graduated as the youngest graduate at the University of Michigan. Oh, shit. Yes. And I believe it's still to this date the youngest. Really? Yes. May have changed in the past two, three years, but I'm not sure. It's probably because they saw what happened to the youngest and they said, all right, we shouldn't let kids come. Yes. We're going to talk about that later because I think that has a big part in all of this. Leopold also graduated that year at the age of 18 and enrolled in law school at the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago is gorgeous. Oh, I love it. It's my favorite campus. Oh my gosh. It's gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Now, Loeb also enrolled there for graduate school. Man, to have money like that and just go wherever you want to go. Can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) So it's here in 1923 that the two reconnect. Now, Loeb was less into academics than Leopold. He was more of like a social butterfly. He did extracurricular activities, he played tennis, and he loved reading a good old detective book, which is kind of funny. (laughs) So they both realized that they're interested in true crime, but not for the reasons I am. No, no, no. They glorified the criminals. You see, Leopold believed that he and Loeb were superior. Leopold was really into the Superman theory from Nietzsche, a German philosopher who believed that some of these killers possessed extraordinary and unusual capabilities and superior intellects that pretty much allowed them to get away with murder. So yeah, so the Superman is the best and highest man above all others. So he didn't have to abide by the rules or the laws. Therefore, only a Superman can commit the perfect crime. So this is when they get their idea that they're going to commit the perfect crime. So they start planning some more petty thefts, right? They're starting again, life of crime. First, they plan to rob Loeb's old fraternity house in Michigan. So on November 10th, 1923, they actually drove from Chicago to Michigan and they made it there about three in the morning, put on their masks, these little black ski masks, and they entered the fraternity house. Now the members had just fallen asleep after a crazy night of celebrating a uh, football win. And the men also carried handguns when they went into the house, just in case they got caught. But nobody woke up, they didn't have to use the guns, and the robbery was 
a successful one. They took a few things from the house. And so then they're like, well, that was fun. What can we do next? So <laughs> they just keep committing more crimes, a lot of vandalism, shoplifting, and eventually even some arson. However, it just, it wasn't enough. It wasn't giving them a fulfillment. Like they kind of wanted to be headline news in the paper. Now around this time, Loeb gained power over Leopold, pretty much stating to him that if he wanted to have sex with him, then he has to agree to his shenanigans. What? So this is for sure when we know they start being intimate with each other. Because Leopold... Uh, the top and who's the bottom? <laughs> Who cares, bro? <laughs> well, I, I mean, according to this, Loeb must be the top. <laughs> Because Leopold is the one who I think more so, and I'll talk about this later after we're done. I feel like Leopold is just in love. Like he's in love with this man and this man happens to be into crime. And so he just goes along with it, you know? Lots of crimes happen like that. Lovers. Just like Jordan Clyde. Exactly, exactly. I honestly, I really think that's what's happening here, but you can decide in the end. So... The two guys start planning the perfect crime. So here's the plan. They're gonna kidnap a boy with wealthy parents and they actually had some trouble choosing a victim. They even thought about taking Loeb's younger brother, Tommy, but they decided that it would just be too risky. His own brother, he was gonna take his own brother. That's insane. That's why I say Loeb is the crazy one. To me, Loeb is the crazy one. So they'd just go drive around the Harvard school for boys and find someone to take. They weren't gonna choose someone, they were gonna let fate choose. So they wanted to kidnap the boy and kill him. So they already knew they were gonna kill him and then extort money from his rich parents. So they spend about six months planning all of this. They adopted aliases, they opened bank accounts under these fake aliases, and they even practiced renting a car to use for the murder. They practice writing a ransom note, how it should be structured and addressed, lots and lots of planning. Now they knew that Kenwood would be the best place to find a victim with wealthy parents, so they knew that the school was the best spot. That's their first mistake. Why would they choose the neighborhood that they live in? I don't get it. Yeah, they they think they get the perfect crime, but that's just stupid. <laughs> like, that's the first big mistake. So, on May 21st, 1924, Leopold and Loeb take their rental car and drive around the Harvard School for Boys. Now, the car they rented was a 1923 Willys Knight touring car. It is fancy as fuck. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> Like, that just shows how rich these kids are because this is the car they chose to murder in. It is gorgeous. Now, earlier that day, the Leopold's chauffeur, he asked the boys about the car because it stands out. And he's like, what? What do you need that for? And Leopold's like, well, I've got to unload some materials from my car to this car. And that was it. That was the conversation. It's so, a cover-up. Yes. So the chauffeur later tells that he never actually saw the boys unload anything from either car, but he did see them drive off. So they actually talked to a few boys and one boy was waiting to play a pickup baseball game. But around 5.15, they were about to give up when they spotted Loeb's second cousin, 14-year-old Bobby Franks. So he was walking home alone and they turned the car around slowly and pulled up next to him. Now, I have a map of where they pick up Bobby and how close he was to his house. Now, Joe, you've lived in Chicago. So like one Chicago block, it's pretty long, but that's all yeah. he had. 
to get home. So the Franks lived on the block between 50th and 51st and Bobby was picked up between 49th and 50th. So literally one block. The last time you had me on, we did a story and the kid was like a block from his house too. Mm-hmm. So Loeb knew Bobby would get in because why wouldn't you want to hang out with your cool cousins, you know? Your older genius cousins doing good things, you know? They chose their victim. So at first, Bobby is like, no, I'm going to walk. I'm almost home. But then Loeb convinces him by saying he wants to talk about a tennis racket because he knew Bobby loved playing tennis and he even would play tennis at the Loeb's house. So of course he gets in the car. <sighs> I can't say it enough. It's crazy how they pick the victim, like someone they know, basically. That's the second mistake. Second cousin, that's the second mistake. It's your cousin. Why? Why? I just don't. And also, like, what are they want some ransom? I mean, they come from like a rich family. It's about power. It's man. about so, yes. It's about proving that they could do it. Really, they just want to prove that they can do it. I mean, the ransom note only lasted like a couple of hours before the body was found. Anyway, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so he gets in the car, and now I always say, always go with your first intuition. And Bobby should have done that. But he didn't. Poor kid. Now, as soon as he gets in the front seat, Loeb attacks immediately, covering the boy's mouth while Leopold zooms off. Now, Loeb then begins striking Bobby in the head with a chisel. Oof. Now, there is some argument who did the actual murder and who was driving, but many think that Leopold was driving and Loeb attacked. Now, Bobby was still alive when he was dragged to the back seat and a rag was placed in his mouth and taped. Now, it's believed that Bobby actually died shortly after from suffocation from the rag and he was still alive when he was put on the floor of the car. So, Leopold drove all the way to Hammond, Indiana, where they stopped to eat to wait for it to get a little darker. So, they where ate... Where did they go? Um, I don't know, but they ended up eating hot dogs and root beers. Ooh, probably no ketchup, though, on the hot dogs. <laughs> Of course not. <laughs> it's a Chicago style dog. Um, but the weird thing is they ate in the car. Oh God! With the but is the body in the trunk or just no? In the back it's just seat? chilling in the back seat. What the hell? Yeah. They end up stripping the body completely nude, and once it was dark enough, they took the body to the culvert at Wolf Lake. Now, unfortunately, like I said, we're very close to this area. Yeah. It's a, it's like a marshy area, right? Would you say yeah, it's it, like a marshy it area? So it is a good place to go throw a body. <laughs> <laughs> hey, your uncle told you that. So. Yeah, he did. He said, because he said, like, it, a body only has to be in the water so long before you would not even be able to identify it so i don't know but they didn't really throw him into the lake they put him in a pipe that was another mistake <laughs> so once they got to the water pipe they pour hydrochloric acid on the body's face they poured it on a scar on the abdomen and on his privates to prevent oh. further identification now after they placed the uh, body leopold claims that he asked Loeb to grab his jacket which is when the glasses had to have fallen now like i'm telling what happened but i'd want you to know that this story i'm telling you came from leopold this is leopold's story of what happened um because later in life he tells it the full story so again this is all coming from leopold i don't know how much of this is actually facts now no one really mentioned this but i 
I'm a spiritual person and I believe in spirit energy and Bobby had just passed away very tragically. So I feel like his energy had to be so high and I'm super sure that he was the one who made sure those glasses stood behind. Yeah, it makes sense. Because like, what are the odds? Right. <laughs> and only three people in Chicago, the whole Chicago. Exactly. Movie, so. Yes. And, and not to say... Had the glasses not fallen, they would have gotten away with this because there was way too many mistakes other than the glasses. But... but easy thing to nail them to. Yes. So they did it. They killed Bobby and they disposed of the body. So on to the next part of the plan. So the two men, they head to a drugstore to use a payphone to look up the address of the Frank's residence and to get their phone number. So they write it all down and they already had the ransom note. All they had to do was put an address on it and mail it. So they go back to Loeb's house and they burn Bobby's clothes. They parked the rental car down the block and they took Leopold's car and drove to another drugstore and they made that first phone call to Mrs. Franks. Now the two men then went to Leopold's where they stood up talking to Mr. Leopold until he went to bed. The men ended up playing cards until Leopold drove drove <laughs> until leopold drove Loeb back home later that night so on the way home Loeb realizes shit i still got this chisel in my pocket so he throws it out the window <laughs> randomly just randomly throws a chisel out just the window the, as they're driving the oh my god they're a fucking dominant, I right? told you. no they're geniuses hey they got the book smart well they're a, they're a book smart, but they're a very bad. <sighs> but that's the thing. Like, are they idiots they or the career? But you got to think just... like, are they idiots or are they just so privileged and thinking they're superior that? Well, I mean, if they genuinely think they're the Superman, all the evidence won't st won't even matter. then. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he throws it out the window. And actually, as he did that, there was a security guard standing out there at one of the homes who heard something hit the ground. And so he picks it up and he notices that it's a chisel that has dried blood on it. So when he sees this, he takes it to the police. It's amazing. I just... Did it end up becoming evidence? Yes. God, what a bunch of idiots. <laughs> Now, both men claimed to go to sleep around 2.30 a.m. And this was, in their eyes, the perfect crime. Like, they were happy. They went to bed happy. They did it. Now, however, remember, I said it's not truly known who was the driver and who was the killer. And that's because during both of their confessions, they each blamed each other. Of course. So Leopold said Loeb did it and Loeb said Leopold did it. And I... Don't know if they felt like they would be less in trouble. I don't know why they would do that. But it didn't matter because they were both involved in the planning. So after the confession, they took authorities to all the locations. It was like as soon as they confessed, they wanted everyone to know the story. Like they wanted to speak. They wanted to take police here and there. We took them from here. Like they were excited to tell them, which it is sickening. Like yes, yeah. it's sickening. So um, they even took them to like where they disposed of the typewriter that they typed the ransom note to, like things like that. Just, yeah, gave it all away. Wasn't, wasn't the typewriter like stolen and that was part of the evidence? Or yeah, they actually had... <laughs> It was stolen from the fraternity house in Michigan, remember? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, when they stole from the fraternity house in Michigan, they took that typewriter and used it. 
to rate that ransom. You fucking idiot, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, you guys. Now, during all of this, Leopold brags about his academics and his high intelligence, which he learned to do that since he was young. So like he's showing police like, hey, oh yeah, I threw the typewriter down in there. By the way, did you know I speak five languages? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but police, they're just like, whatever. They saw right through his BS. Because really, they were thinking, you did a really shitty job at committing your perfect crime. Like, that's what they were thinking. Which... <laughs> amateurs for sure. Now, while taking law enforcement around to their planning spots in the scenes of the crime, Leopold and Loeb didn't really say much to each other. So you can almost feel the tension between them. They were mad at each other um, because like I said, they blamed each other. So I guess they weren't in love anymore. I don't know. So after they confessed, they held nothing back and well, besides who actually murdered Bobby. Like we said, it's like they're bragging about what they did. They want everyone to know. Now, Thomas Crow, the state attorney general, he was done. He was ready to take these two to trial. Easy win, right? So when these high class families, the Leopolds and the Loebs found out their sons confessed, they were shocked. I mean, lots of people were shocked, to be honest. But they still feared that their sons being sentenced to hang was just out of, out of the question. So Jacob Lowe, Richard's father, sought out one of the best criminal defense attorneys of that time. His name was Clarence Darrow. And at first, Clarence was like, uh, well, they already confessed. I don't think I want to get involved. But he was very well known for helping those that had absolutely no chance. Now, Leopold and Loeb were not his typical clients. He most of the time helped the less fortunate against big corporations. But the reason he took the case was not just for the $70,000, but because these men were up for the death penalty. And Clarence Darrow was very against capital punishment. So the trial trial starts and the defense is hurting big time. They really can't argue much, especially when the prosecution has not one, but two confessions to work with. So the defense goes another route. So Clarence Darrow says that his clients will plead guilty as long as they only are promised life sentences. So no death penalty. I mean, there was really nothing else they could do at this point except try to get life in prison with both of them confessing in full detail. So they skip the trial and they go straight to the sentencing. Both sides spoke in a closing statement. The defense argued two main things. One, they weren't entirely responsible for their actions. And two, they wanted the jury to take into consideration how young the men were. So pretty much like saying, they're not even mature yet. They did something stupid. Boys will be boys, you know? Both college graduates at this point. But they're young. But they're because still young. And probably they also a brat yeah, well, coming yeah. from a rich family. Now, Thomas Crow argued that Leopold and Loeb had actually sexually assaulted the young boy, which never came up in evidence. But he knew, remember from that letter, that they were what he called perverts. So he's using that against them, that they, the fact that they were in an intimate relationship, meaning they wanted to sexually assault the young boy. Now his evidence came from the coroner's report that stated that the boy's rectum was distended, meaning some foreign object had been inserted. Now the sexual abuse may have been the main motive for the murder, saying that it was a rape gone wrong, but the defense objected immediately and argued absolutely not because the coroner's report only listed that the rectum was distended the size of a very small 
finger. Therefore, rape was just out of the question. So they, they argued this and the defense asked that this sexual abuse accusation be thrown away because of no real evidence. But I the mean, they could have the tiny dicks. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, <laughs> since the beginning, like, I was thinking, like, the main, how you call it? Reason. The main reason they, they want to kill someone, I think it's something to do with their sexual oh you so you're thinking that way too yeah because like during that time being uh gay mm-hmm. it's very taboo and you have to do it like a secretly yeah and then how uh, when they throw the body and it destroy uh the genitals, the genitals and stuff maybe mm-hmm. they, they try to cover it up yeah, i agree i fully agree later after going through all of this i kind of changed my mind too and thought about it and was like, you know what? Yeah, it could have had. I don't think it was the main reason, but I think it definitely was part of it. I do. I really do. So yes, Goist, I agree with you. Now the judge, did you sneeze? No, she made like an excited agree. Ching, ching. Ching, ching. Then did finger go. Yes. Ching, ching, girl. That was correct. So, (laughs) (laughs) So the judge never denied it though. But he also never allowed it. So he also never objected when Thomas Crow continuously throughout the trial called them perverts. Because it's the 1920s and being gay, like we said, it's taboo, you know? So in the, all their minds, they're probably like, yeah, they're perverts. Now the trial went until August of 1924. And the judge needed a lot of time to process both arguments and evidence before making a decision. The judge for this trial received numerous death threats asking that he sentence them to death or he himself would be put to death if he didn't. And it got so bad that the judge actually needed security like 24 seven. Finally, in September of 1924, a verdict was finally reached. Now, the judge announced that although the two men pled guilty, knowing their wrongdoing due to their age, the court will not enforce the death penalty. So because they were so young, he was like, we're not going to do that. However, they were both sentenced to life plus 99 years. So both were found guilty of the kidnapping and murder. However, due to the fact the judge did not say whether the sentence would be served consecutively or concurrent, concurrently, sorry, <laughs> leaving a sort of kind of a loophole, it meant that they could possibly be out sooner. Now at this time in 1925 in Illinois, if the judge did not state this, then the convicted person would automatically serve concurrently serving the longer term. So I'm not sure what happened here. (laughs) (laughs) So both of these men were transported down to Joliet State Prison, which is about what, like 40 miles from Chicago, give or take? (laughs) Yeah. Now, although both men were kept apart at the prison, they still remained good friends. In 1931, Leopold was transferred five minutes away to the Statesville prison. And a little bit later, Loeb was also transferred there. How this is happening? I don't know. They definitely shouldn't have kept them together, but they did. Money in high places, man. It's true. That's true. Now, Loeb had a pretty easy prison life. His family financially supported him, which allowed him to pay off guards for favors and other inmates for sexual favors. However, one day, an inmate named James E. Day arrived and Loeb was immediately attracted to him. And in January of 1936, Loeb made a a sexual advance towards Day and Day fully attacked him with a razor, slashing Loeb over 50 times. And eventually due to major blood loss, Richard Loeb passes away. What the fuck? 
Yeah. <laughs> he was 30 years old. And get this, Nathan Leopold was present the moment of Loeb's death. Wow, that's pretty wild. That is very wild. Now, Day was not charged for Loeb's murder due to something around this time called homosexual panic defense. Oh, man. Yeah, so because he thought he was afraid for his life because a homosexual was uh, trying to take advantage. I guess that gave you the right to murder them. So Nathan Leopold in 1941, he worked as an x-ray tech in the prison hospital. He also worked as a nurse in the psych ward trying his best to get parole. So he was doing anything he could to look like a, a good prisoner. He even worked on a research study to find a cure for malaria. Now this study that he was part of actually did later discover the drug that cured malaria. Wow. He was never actually promised anything for this research, but he thought that it would look good and eventually help him. Now, if he ever did become eligible for parole, that is, because later doctors stated that Leopold really didn't help much other than um, <laughs> having sex with the test subjects. <laughs> In 1957, Leopold finally won parole, but with a few rules, of course. He had to remain silent and not gain publicity upon his release. The press went buck wild. And so eventually, Nathan Leopold Jr. went to live in Puerto Rico near San Juan. He got out. Wow, they let him free? They let him free. I kind of like how exile worked. Mm -hmm. So he found work in a hospital as part of his parole. He married a woman, interesting. And after five years, he was off parole. So he did a lot. He traveled the world everywhere and then even came back home to Chicago for a little bit. He continued his education, earning a master's of science and he taught math at the University of Puerto Rico. He wrote a book about birds that was published in Puerto Rico in 1963 and later a fictional book titled Compulsion about the Leopold and Loeb murder came out and Leopold was pissed and he tried to sue, stating that the book deprived him of his right to privacy, but several courts were just like, shut up. Like, <laughs> you let out your... <laughs> like, he was the one who told everybody what happened, so nobody cared. On August 29th, 1971, Nathan Leopold died of a diabetes-related heart attack. Strange fact, he donated his corneas for transplant. Interesting. Someone, yeah, fact. someone has the eyes of a murderer. Now, I think... Who received it is also a murderer. Oh, I still can't believe he got married to a woman. Mm. Now, I think what makes me angry is that even after spending more than half of his life in prison, due to his outrageous wealth, wealthy family, he still turned out very successful and even lived a very successful and normal life. I mean, he got married, he had a career, he wrote a book, traveled the world. So that is the story of Leopold and Loeb, or the way I like to say, the Bobby Franks murder. This crazy story, man. This is insane. Okay, must be nice, like, you go to jail, you kill someone, and you, you still have a good life. Well, because they were you so still- young, which I think I talked about Actually, with you, Joe, one time. The other case you guys did with me with the little boy that was murdered. But the oh, redhead yeah. guy, the killer. He just got parole too, right? He just got out. He lives in Queens, New York. Yeah, I just read an article yesterday about him. But with that case too, like he was so young going in that he's coming out and he still has enough time to rebuild 
his life and have a good life. Well, that's what prison's supposed to be. It's supposed to be rehabilitation. And I was talking to someone about this and they said that. They said, you know, but the thing is, like, we have to remember these people, Leopold has money to do this. Like, he has, even in prison, he was still doing, I mean, he found a cure for malaria. Not him necessarily, but he helped. <laughs> You know, and then like he gets out and he gets to do all this stuff. That's how prison should be for everyone, not just because you have money. Well, that's a whole different debate, though. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Technically, that's how prison is supposed should to be, be, right? Like, it's supposed to be. I don't know. In hearing this case, I know Goy said that she thinks sexual abuse took part in this. What do you think, Joe? I never thought of that angle to begin with. These just seems like a couple of bratty kids who are just eager to show the world how smart they are, which... I mean, you don't want to be caught for murder. So I don't think they even thought that through. Like, what's their end plan that these two random people who people can't know is them are published in newspapers? Like, that can't be satisfying either. Right. It definitely would have led on to other things, I think. Oh, definitely. Especially yeah. if they got a thought they got away with it, you know? Now, does the simple mistakes they made during this crime prove that they were immature? Or do you think they just were very immature boys? <sighs> What like, do you think, guys? Because, you know, they say in science that men don't mature until later in life. And actually, they just changed it again. It used to be, like, in the late 20s. And then it changed to, like, 30s. And now, do you know what age they're saying men mature at? What? 43. No way. Yes. I just read this. I should have sent it to you. 43 years old. Which is was part of the defense. They were saying, oh, they can't make good decisions because they're so young. Which I agree. But also... What you mentioned earlier, Joe, they skipped so many grades and they missed out on all that socialism, like socializing. I was going to say socialism. All that socializing. I don't think they were prepared for... It's important. Socializing is so important. I think it's just one of those, like you've just got uh, some two young kids who really have never kind of been challenged by anything, trying to prove themselves for some weird reason that they're so smart. I don't know. Yeah. I our case. It's very I'm pretty bizarre. sure it just says something. Uh, you think it's just sexual? Yeah, just a sexual thing. And it could be because, I mean, they're, I don't know. I don't know. It also makes me think because they were both raised by governesses and nurses. Maybe something happened to them in their childhood. I mean, I've heard that back then that was just kind of a common thing too, but mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, because that could have started everything too, you know? Um, do you think their perfect crime actually could have been the perfect crime had they done it correctly i mean they would have had to have changed like 10 different things then i mean I, <laughs> they were far off way off and not just that richard loeb was obsessed with the case like he wanted to talk to reporters he wanted to ask questions he was constantly asking about his cousin and those are just big no-nos like why would you do that and these two guys are cocky they they would have told someone eventually. I think they would have said something. So no, I don't think it ever would have been perfect. I mean, it's makes sense, like like how they like uh really want attention by talking to yes. the journalists and stuff like that. Like I don't know, maybe it's just like they try to hide it by talking. <laughs> but they overdo it. But they overdo it. They, they just overdid everything. It, yeah, maybe I... during that time if. If you show on newspaper, it's a big thing. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe yeah, they won't. I mean, we're talking 100 years ago. <sighs> it's, it's insane. Do you think if they weren't rich, that they easily would have been sentenced to death, death no matter what their age was? Honestly, if they're not rich, they're probably not doing this, though. It's, it's really hard because it's a 
entire change in their life if they're not rich. So I don't really know. I feel like there's too many like dominoes before yeah. we get to this. Yeah, I know what you're saying. In other words, they did this because of that rich privilege. I mean, I'm not 100% on the sexual abuse thing. So for me, it kind of feels like they just... I don't know, like, they didn't feel like there was another challenge left for them, almost. Maybe, yeah, maybe. They they were so successful at everything else in their life, you know? Everything. Why yeah. wouldn't they just be like... at murder? It's just, I just still, I still think there's more to their mental state. Because who just says, like, who's just like, you know what, let's, let's commit a crime. Let's, let's kill someone. Like, who... You know what I'm saying? Like, you have to be mentally. Something's not right mentally. And, and and it's not like they had, like, any any history of any sort of violent behavior. Like, they had petty crimes. The high right, from right. Petty cr- but who goes, I'm going to steal a typewriter. Oh, yeah, well, tomorrow I'm going to murder someone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, I mentioned this earlier. I still truly stick to this. I think Loeb, Richard Loeb, was the mastermind in all of this. I think Leopold was just following his lover, you know, like doing what his partner wanted to do. That's why, man, Indonesian always say, when you fall in love, a cat poop tastes like a chocolate. You do whatever your partner asks. (laughs) I like that. I'm going to use that. (laughs) And then we already talked about, do we think they would do it again? Hell yes. They would have done something else. Without a doubt. Pretty sure that the hoof Leopold, I think he still do do stupid shit like that too. Oh, yeah. Puerto Rico when he's free. Yeah. And especially like in Puerto Rico, like in poor country on the 20s or 30s or the 70s or whatever, when he's released and it's just like, it's very easy and you have money in such a poor country, it's very easy to get a victim. I thought about that too, Gois, because, again, and I mentioned this earlier, like, he married a woman, and to me, I believe if you're homosexual, you're homosexual, like, you're gay. So, if he married a woman, he definitely was living a secret life, which, you're lying already. So why, you know, could he have done something else? Not necessarily murdered someone, but, like, done other things and lied about them? Definitely. Yeah, or, or maybe like a involving like a sexual activity. Yes, yes. So many of these stories that Nana tells us, it's a surprising amount of like wife and husband or husband and girlfriend mm-hmm. where one convinces the other and the other just gets so into it. Like they're in too deep to quit. Yes. Maybe, maybe him and his wife could have been doing bad shit out there and she was an innocent girl at one point and he just convinced her this is the way you know and you get too deep you know so much stuff he actually i think he did write a book if i'm not mistaken what's it called like bird watched and murdering or something i don't know but i think it was supposed to be like his version of what happened but don't quote me on that it could have been somebody else wrote a book for him because i don't think he was allowed to write a book but again somebody said it's all misinformation because it's coming from one person and yeah. richard Loeb is not alive to stand up for himself hear from one side exactly especially when one person is dead truth yes so yeah there's some things we may never know but what we do know is in the end bobby franks was the one who suffered the worst out of all of this so i actually thought about going on a nicer day it's been pretty cold lately uh to walk around there and see if i can find where this happened i'm sure i can look it up online 
Yeah, I mean, since it's so close to home, you know, I would, yeah. I would, I know there are some YouTube videos of people that actually follow their footsteps because their homes are still up where oh, they wow. lived in Kenwood. Yes, I'm sure they go to Wolf Lake. So if I watch it and see, I'll maybe take a walk out there one day. Not alone. <laughs> Not alone. Voice will be your bodyguard, okay? <laughs> I don't want to find a body. That's all. <laughs> I'll walk with my eyes closed. <laughs> Well, thank you for joining me, guys, for this wild ride. And I hope to tell thank some... Thank you for having of us course, again. Of course, of course. <laughs> I don't know. I hope to tell some more Chicago stories because it's always exciting when it's close to home. Not exciting, right? That's weird. Chicago is a lot of crime. That's oh, why yes. when I... Uh, when I have interview for my green card on the embassy, the consular offering me a gun just to be safe. This did, this did not <laughs> no, this is just a joke. <laughs> but they should have for real. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Miha. <laughs> Love you guys. Good night. Love you too. You have a good night. You too. I hope you guys enjoyed that crazy episode, that story. Oh, it makes me so angry. <laughs> now, I had said over my spring break that I possibly might try to go to Wolf Lake and find the area where Bobby Franks was found, but I'm not going to lie. <laughs> That park scares me. Well, I'm gonna go start my break, y'all. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your families. Enjoy some good sweets. Easter is all about the sweets for my family. We're gonna play some loteria. Ooh, I got my quarters. My family, we take it serious. Like you don't, you don't mess with loteria. You don't cheat and you don't fake call out winners because my tias will come for you. <laughs> So have a happy Easter to all of you that celebrate. And if you don't, have a great weekend. I will see you in two weeks for another episode of Creepy Chisme. Remember to follow me on social media, Facebook groups, Instagram, TikTok. Just search Creepy Chisme. And also send me those listener stories or just send me a comment about the episode. Maybe you didn't like it. Maybe you did. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know because you haven't emailed me at creepychisme for you. That's the number four Y-O-U at gmail.com. I will see you guys very soon. Gracias por escuchar. Y nos vemos pronto. Creepy Chisme is created for entertainment purposes only. Thanks for listening and don't forget... Stay creepy and spread the cheese, man. Adios, mi gente.